question. Good morning, everyone. Hope everyone got a chance to have some breakfast. That was an eclectic assortment of delicious foods. Uh, my name is Nancy Scola. I am a tech reporter at Politico. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be here this morning. We're going to have a great panel. Uh, to my left is Pat Merlot. Uh, Pat is a senior associate and director of electoral programs at the National Democratic Institute. I couldn't remember all this, so I am That's great. going off notes. Uh, to Pat's left is David Rothkopf. He's the CEO and editor-in-chief editor of the FP Group, which is probably best known for publishing uh, foreign policy magazine. To David's left is Lord Mark Malik brown who's a former Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations and is now chairman of Smart Smartmatic, which is an electronic voting company. So thank you all for being here. This should be great. We're going to talk for about uh, 35 minutes and then open it up for questions. Uh, and we'd love to make this pretty conversational. So if you're thinking as the morning is rolling along of questions you might want to ask, that would be great. So I'm going to start with sort of a uh, what I hope is a fairly simple question. And I'd ask you if you could introduce just briefly your work uh, in this field as you go about answering it. What is your perfect vision for how technology could impact elections? If you were a supreme dictator of the world and could sort of design from scratch a system of how uh, the internet, mobile phones, any sort of technology you would like to use would work in, in the election process, what would that look like? So whoever wants to kick that Mark off. Mark has given most thought to being supreme dictator okay. of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you, David. Yeah. There, does, there is a, an evident contradiction between that role as supreme dictator and actually wanting technology to help democracy. But a benign dictator. Uh, um, accepting that. I mean, look, it, it, in a sense, technology can only go as far and as fast as people trust it. Um, you know, the, the technology is there now for everybody to vote in this coming presidential election, you know, online, over the internet. It's certainly, in technology terms, very doable. Uh, but would it lead to a result that the American people would trust? not right away, it wouldn't. And so there's a journey to go. Uh, and you know, in, in that sense, uh, it's all about technology offering solutions to what people see as the principal issues, whether it is removing uh, the sort of suppressions to registration, whether it's enlarging the number of people who can vote, whether it's getting overseas military able to vote, uh, whether it's helping older people to be able to vote without having to go to the polling station. And there are all sorts of things where technology can come in, provide a solution, either through internet voting or through something which is more interim, which is, you know, better electronic equipment and voting systems uh, in the polling stations themselves. There are lots of sort of these interim confidence building steps that, that, that can happen. But you know, the ultimate end of it all is something where it's not just that we vote online, but we have a much broader electronic engagement with our government uh, where we're able to express our views in a continuing way through, if you like, the sort of internet of referenda and of, of, of sort of government plebiscite, if you like, where whether it's as member, uh, parents and of a, a school board, whether it's as members of a union or a church, or as concerned voters dealing with local or national government, we feel that electronic internet-based methods have allowed us an engagement in our democracy, which we currently don't have through just the once every four year vote. I think the dictator of the world is history. And history and the direction it's going suggests that it doesn't matter what I think. 
uh, because we're going to end up with everybody voting on the internet all the time. Um, that's, you know, we are moving very rapidly towards the world where in a few years, effectively, everybody on the planet's going to be connected in a man-made system for the first time in history. And that's going to redefine what a community is. It's going to redefine how people associate with themselves as groups, including as political parties. And it's going to redefine social interaction. And uh, you know, once upon a time, the technology was putting a piece of paper in a ballot box, which could be stuffed, just like the internet can be hacked. There, there are problems with you know all of these things, and uh, you know there are a number of places in the world right now voting that way, and there will be many, many more. And ultimately, there will be all of them. In fact, I think the problem that we're most likely to have is too much voting on the internet and not too little. In other words, this, this referenda, this sort of, this kind of uh, culture of referenda uh, could lead, because the, 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 of the ease of voting in these systems, to constant voting. Um, and rethinking some of the thoughtful processes of representative democracy all of you from Washington probably don't understand that concept of thoughtful processes of representative <laughs> democracy. Uh, but the notion is it sort of slows things down a little bit, and it's less impulse-driven. And internet voting will be much more impulse-driven, particularly if it happens a lot. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, my, my, you know my, my view is everybody will be voting on the internet soon. I hope that everybody is not voting on the internet too frequently. Well, Nancy, I, I would start um, with the point that dictatorships can be imposed. Democracy can't. And in a sense, democracy has to develop organically from within. People have to want it. People have to want to be engaged. People have to see the potential and the possibilities of being engaged. And when they do, when they see that that's welcome, they will find various tools for engagement. And in that sense, you know, I really agree with Madeleine Albright that context is important. I mean, in fact, dictators do exist today. And in fact, around the world, many people who are fighting for democracy are doing so against very strong countercurrents. And they are using all the tools they can to try to get there. Tunisia, one of the nice things about Tunisia is how people have made use of the internet and how they've used websites and different kinds of infographics and, and video and so on to project what they want and where they want to go, even in elections. Citizen election observers uh, in Tunisia, a group called Meraki Boon, part of the Tunisian civil society networks, um, were able to monitor what went on inside the polling stations mm -hmm. using random samples, using fast mobile technologies to communicate what their findings were, using powerful databases in order to analyze what they saw, using all kinds of technologies to project digital mapping and so on, what their findings were so that the citizens could have confidence uh, in what was going on and where there were problems to pinpoint and, and understand what the nature of those problems were. That's happening in hundreds of countries around the world, and that's part of what NDI does as part of our, our everyday work. I think what the essence of what Madeline was getting at is that this is based upon trust. Um, without going on too long, I think that's the difference in how we call an Uber or how I decide to use my smartphone in order to do banking, which is, in essence, a private transaction where the decision is mine 
Um, the decision about whether to employ lots of public funds to take a technology to deal with how people choose their representatives and whether they trust that process is in essence, as, as Madeleine Albright said, a public policy matter. And public policy is best done through inclusion, best done where people can see and have ability to know and trust. In countries that are affected by conflict, in countries where the level of economic development is so low that technologies are not so reliable or not so well known, in countries where the cost of these big technologies for voting and other, not just in voting, in, in what you do to make a census and other arenas are so high that it might increase dependence on foreign donors rather than national independence, the, the, the questions are complex. So I believe in moving forward and embracing all of the tools that are available. I love my smartphone and my, my pad, and I love to introduce people and how to use these things. But I think the context is really important, and we have to be realistic in how this progress will move and how hard it will be to fight in order to advance it. Okay. So one of the things that's fascinating to me about electronic voting or internet voting is that I have no opinions as a journalist, but in my private life, when I think about this issue, I can have 10 opinions on it in a minute. I think it's the best idea in the world. I think it's the worst idea in the world within sort of a very short span of time. One of the things, you look at it and say, how can we not have this in the United States? We you know, helped create the internet. We have some of the leading technology companies in the world. At the same time, the, the practice of elections in this country by design and by accident sort of lend you, they give to you to think that this is not a, a system that works very well in our model, right? We, we sort of cherish the anonymity of our ballot, which one of the reasons we can bank online is because we connect identity to our transactions. And we have a decentralized system because we tend to be fearful of centralized systems in this country. So how is, is the, are those minor sort of design tweaks we have to figure out or is that we can never have this system in this country because of the way this country is designed. That I think they're minor design tweaks. Okay. <laughs> Say more. <laughs> well, no, I just, you know, I mean, you, you, you can provide as much anonymity as people want or as little anonymity as people want. You can make it centralized or you can make it decentralized. You can tailor it to whatever kind of approach we want to get. And you can make it as secure as you want to make it. Um, so it's, you know, I mean, it's, these are easy technological problems to solve when you consider that you have giant financial institutions conducting second-to-second -second transactions of trillions of dollars, um, you know, in Forex markets, and they feel secure doing that. Um, or we have, you know, all of our national security, um, you know, uh, uh, discussions taking place via secure systems. Um, it, the, the, the reality is these are problems people are solving every day. And, 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 I, and I think, it, you know, to get to the core of, 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 of relieving you of that anxiety of going through all 10 of those um, <laughs> opinions when, you, when you're at home, is that what we really need is a debate about the nature of democracy in this new era. And we really need to think through some of the fundamental issues that are associated with democracy in a connected world. Like, do I have a right to the internet? You know, there, there are nine countries in the world where it's a constitutional right, and, you know, and I think if you can't get a job without being on the internet, you can't be educated without being on the internet, you can't compete economically without being on the internet, you can't be a citizen without being on the internet, then you ought to have a right to being on the internet. If you have a right to being on the internet, do you have a right to electricity? There's 1.2 billion people on the planet who don't have electricity.
But if you, you know, it, that would have seemed like a luxury once. But the reality is, if you don't have electricity, you can't be on the internet. Who owns my data? If I, if, you know, we're all like, you know, in this sort of new world, we're all like Pigpen from the Charlie Brown, <laughs> you know, where we sort of walk around and there's a little cloud at his feet, you know, and that's like the data we're throwing off all the time. Do I own the data? Does my phone company own the data? Does my government own the data? Because the data is the fundamental economic unit of our society going forward. That's the thing of value. And if I get to own it, I get the value. And if Google gets to own it, Google gets to value. And right now, Google's made this fantastic deal with the world. A little bit like buying Manhattan Island for $24 <laughs> in beads. We'll give you something fantastic, Gmail, you know? And you just give us all your data, you know? And so, and so far, that deal's worked for them. But we have to answer these questions, you know, about the fundamental rights that people have in a connected society before we then move on to the modalities of democracy, which are simple questions. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say you're going to hear later in the morning from Brazil and India, you know, both countries which, you know, didn't have some predisposition to do it electronically, but had large complex electorates and complex electoral situations, which they've come up with, as you'll hear, very different solutions. They're not identical systems by any means, but both respond to the particular challenges of security of the vote, counting the vote in a very large country, getting results quickly. And, and so, you know, we see as a company, no country does it quite the same. You know, every country has its own cultural uh, concerns. You know, some countries have no difficulty at all pushing a screen to vote for somebody. Many others still want to mark a ballot paper because, you know, that's religion. Um, and But the f fact is, you know, uh, you can design the systems around that. And I think, you know, David has typically put it very well and pungently. I mean, you know, we, we've got to sort out these basic issues of who owns what and what are our rights in a democracy. But, you know, we, we should, in a sense, stop hiding behind the idea that the technology can't be made to work. Uh, in banking, it works. Here too, it would work. And I think, you know, the just final point is, you know, when did, you know, for all America's difficulties and the fact it's decentralized and everything else, when the system really broke down in Florida in 2000, nationally, something happened. Uh, there was money, federal money, to fix the machines. So, you know, what you don't want is it again to have to be another Florida that makes that happen because, you know, Florida did real damage to America's democratic standing in the world, as, as, as Madeleine Albright just told us. Um, you know, it's embarrassing for the country that's produced Google and Silicon Valley and Facebook uh, that the election system lags most other people's. So, Nancy, it's a little bit um, like Cisco and Ebert. They can see a movie, and they may both like the movie, but it sounds like they're arguing over, you know, <laughs> over things. And I believe in many ways we're all on the same page here. Um, and let me take, you know, a different point on the page, uh, if you will. Um, I, the, Mark is right. The 2000 election, and NDI doesn't comment on US elections, but the 2000 election certainly created a number of problems and reflected issues of public trust. One of the outcomes, the Help America Vote Act, led this country to move to electronic voting. And you know, a commissioner from the Election Assistance Commission will probably throw some light on this. And a former leader of that commission is sitting two rows back. Um, 
But there's one, another consequence of that act, and that is today in, in cities as wealthy as San Francisco, there are warehouses with aged voting machines that need updating or replacement. And the San Francisco Chronicle just carried a story about the head of the election saying, where are the millions of dollars going to come from? And what's more is, do we really need the millions of dollars to replace these machines when the 578 polling stations in the city are hardly ever visited? Because in part, David's point, people in San Francisco, like in Oregon, are mostly voting by mail. It's their choice. They trust that ballot. I have some reservations about mail-in ballots. In fact, if you want to look at where problems are in the US electoral system, the possibility of people abusing mail-in ballots is really quite high. So there is an issue here that reflects context, reflects complexities, and reflects nuances. And the same thing I would say is true overseas. You can have very good technology, as Madeleine Albright said, but the context in which a government is operating may be overriding the public trust and trying to perpetuate itself and stay in power irrespective of the people's will. And just, if, I'll give just two quick examples. Mm -hmm. um, a few elections ago in Kazakhstan, the technology was really marvelous. Um, it was not Smartmatic's technology. And, and we don't endorse any particular technology or companies, uh, just like we don't endorse any particular political parties. But what you did in, in that country was you went into a polling station, and you went up to your voter registry, and you provided your fingerprint, which is a, you know, now a very common biometric thing to do to identify yourself. Then you went into the booth. And you picked up a scanner, something like you might find in a supermarket in these countries. And you found David's name, and next to it was a barcode. And you put that scanner to the barcode, which registered that's who you wanted. You went through the list. At the end, you confirmed that this is what you wanted. And you were given a PIN number. And with that PIN number, you could go home and go online and check and see whether this actually registered what you wanted. Now, that all sounds very high tech and futuristic, but think about this. There was no clear division between the electronic database that registered the finger and the database that registered the vote. And people did not believe that their vote was secret. What's more is your boss, the party boss, or some other boss could take that PIN number and sit with you and be sure you voted for exactly who they wanted you to vote. And the intimidation factor that's present in that country is one that negates the potentials for the electronic technology. I could use Venezuela as a similar example, where right now what you see going on with the technology that's taking place and biometrics that are there are some campaigns on television where the thumb is held up and it said, the thumb is your vote which makes people, many people think that perhaps when they register to vote, they'll know, know what they did inside the polling booth. So these are the contexts. I think contexts are really critically important. It's not just the technologies. It's how we create what I think Madeleine Albright said, inclusivity, transparency, and particularly accountability on these matters. Okay. Yeah, can I just, if yes. I may, just, just one point on this. I mean. You know, I think we could all accept, Pat, that you know, technology is no better than the people who use it, uh, and you know that, you know, for that, and and so you know, it's a little bit. I mean, I don't mean to sound like some sort of pastiche of the NRA argument about guns, but you know, uh, it, and the people, it's people what kill people kind of argument, but it really is the case with technology. I mean, in in 
Kazakhstan, they stole elections before they got technology. Yes. With technology, they still steal elections. That's absolutely. Um, you know, so, you know, but, but the point is, you raised the issue of American postal ballots, which are now a huge numbers, 40%, I think. Um, you know, postal ballots are about the most insecure voting thing on earth. You know, internet voting is much securer than postal ballots. Internet voting is not as secure as, you know, as polling station electronic voting. But, you know, what you need is a sort of iterative process where um, election officials are allowed to sort of react to looming weaknesses of the system, in yes. this case, you know, postal ballots, and do something about it. And, you know, at the moment, the UK, the US system seems to be sort of stalled and unable politically and financially to, res to respond to this. And then just my point, I mean, in San Francisco, they may be saying, where's the money for this? But, you know, in truth, these electronic systems are not more expensive uh, than the systems they replace, particularly when you're spreading the cost over the number of elections which will be used. I mean, you know, you mentioned Venezuela, which is electronic. Its elections are a third less than Colombia's per capita, which isn't electronic. So, you know, I, I think the cost issue is sometimes a bit got wrong. Okay. This, this proves we agree that yeah. the conversation <laughs> yeah. is really important. I'm going to ask your indulgence. I just thought of uh, this idea. Let's do a snap poll. If you, uh, whatever your next national election, say it's about a year away as it is in the United States, would you vote by internet if you had the ability to? Okay. <laughs> just about everybody. Interesting. Um, thank Including you. some of us who don't have the U.S. vote. Exactly what people would you vote in the U.S. election. Would you vote in the U.S. election? That's, 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 right. that's the, yeah. the worst. <laughs> It was about everyone. I think, most, I think yeah. it was, yeah, I think it was just about everyone. Um, the, uh, Pat alluded to this question of how much of an issue, if you think it is an issue, is the people in, the intransigence of people currently in power to opening up the process in some way? Um, yeah, that's what, the people currently in government, you all have been in and around government. Okay. How, how reluctant are they to? I feel like there's sort of two conversations going on here. And so, you know, of course it's an issue. You know, of course, you know, whoever pick, whoever's making the decision about what the election looks like and whether it works or not is an issue. If it's a despot, it's going to be a lousy process. If it's a corrupt system, it's going to be a corrupt process. And I think, you know, that's what you're talking about in context. Personally, you, you'll forgive me, I, I think these are salient issues. I'm just not that interested in the context because I think there's this bigger thing happening. I think that over the course of the next 10 years, we are going to rewire democracy from the ground up. And it's not just going to be about elections. It's going to be about these things like basic rights. It's going to be about the way governments work. You know, Mark was in the development business for a long time. There's a lot of data that's coming out now that says that the best thing you can do to help a poor person is to give them some money. Just give them some money. <laughs> not give them services. Not give them all this government stuff. You, you know, there are 10 million Tanzanians who have mobile money. Uh, you know, have their, their bank in their pocket. The, the, you, you will be able to disintermediate the government on that and hundreds of other services. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Netflix, I mean, uh, 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 Blockbuster Video got disintermediated out of existence. Re real estate agents got disintermediated out of existence. Travel mm -hmm. agencies got disintermediated out of existence. We even started to have the discussion about how you disintermediate governments mm -hmm. out of business or you yeah. change 
from big buildings full of bureaucrats to algorithms that figure out how these things go. These are giant questions. And the reason that I feel some urgency about it is I know the technology is coming. I know we're going to face these issues. I know we're going to rewire our societies. I don't know where the philosophers are. It took us 350 years to get from Gutenberg to the First Amendment. You know, and in the middle was the Glorious Revolution and John Locke and some other people. Where are they now? How, why are we, you know, that's the discussion that I think we need to have. Anyone else want to tackle the... Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm completely with David on this point that I think elections are just a little bit of the iceberg we can see. This is about reinventing the citizens' relationship with government. I mean, fundamentally, it's about transforming how we hold government to account and what government does and how it does it. And so the algorithm versus the big building of bureaucrats is, I think, a wonderful, wonderful way of capturing that. And so, you know, for me, Part of the problem is that we've detached this act of voting from this broader revolution in, in how we govern ourselves, basically. And, you know, it, it, it's, and we've just got to start thinking outside that box, because once we do it, the, vote, you know, the, the security challenge of voting, instead of looking like this big mountain to climb, is a very teeny-weeny foothill uh, in, a, in a much bigger climb. Where we're, what's really interesting is when we move away from the questions of elections, because you know elections elections are particularly sensitive and are really something that have to do with public trust. Now, you know to paraphrase what Madeleine Albright said, elections belong to the people, and the people have to be you know intimately involved in the nature of how they select their representatives. Uh, Germany's highest court said that. And, and I think it's, it's something that we know around, no matter what the technology is, again, to try to steal from Madeleine Albright, whatever the technology might be, Canada uses paper not because they're adverse to technology. Canada's election commission is one of the most technologically savvy commissions in the world. Their website is amazing and what you can do and learn and how you can dig into it. But, I, but you know, leaving that aside, I totally agree that what we're talking about is changing and what is the evolution of the relationship between a citizen and that entity that they have chosen to organize their society, protect their security, provide for the, the common good. And if you look at the White House website, anybody can start an e-petition today. You know, there are platforms that are out there like you know, petitioncongress.com and other platforms that allow anybody who's involved in policy advocacy to solicit participation around the country and to move forward. We crowdfund uh, to do a lot of good things in the common good around the country. Every single election campaign, as you know better than me, is very busy looking at the question of what are the newest get out the vote technologies, both the software and the hardware that they can use to get at people. In fact, you know, one of the questions, Nate Tibbetts, who's sitting out there, who's a leader in mobile technology, you know, mentioned to me this week, is that, you know, is this going to be the, the Snapchat election? Um, you know, I happen to think the loser is going to be characterized as having used Stumbler rather than Tumblr. But, I mean, that's where we're going with <laughs> technologies today. All of that is very, very exciting. And I think this is part of how can a citizen, given their particular circumstance, because context is relevant, how can a citizen engage with people who are making politics better 
and hold those people accountable and express themselves? And how can government be in a position to respond back? So let me just do one more pitch on this. The demand around the world for openness in government is one of the most exciting things that I've seen happen in the democratic space over in the period of the last 10 years. And a good example of it is the creation of the Open Government Partnership. You know, OGP had eight countries that were the initiators four years ago. Today, there's 66 governments participating with civil society on a whole range of commitments to open government data, whether it's in forestry or mining or hopefully in elections and in other arenas, so that citizens can look at government performance, engage it, hold government accountable, and can advocate on the basis of data analysis. I mean, Madeline mentioned the launching at NDI of the Open uh, Election Data Initiative. This is part of that trend, part of that movement in the world, and we are all for it. I think it will allow people to do things with government that's very different than what's happened in the past and may open up real possibilities for accountability as well as transparency. I mean, that's the trend. That's where we're going. If we talk about elections, which is really the next panel's thing, technology is already part of it. It's here. It's evolving. The question is, how in given context can people best manage the appropriate applications of those technologies so that you come out of this with trust in the process rather than higher volatility? And in many, many countries, as we see right now in Burkina Faso today or Cote d'Ivoire that's coming up to October 25 elections where tensions are going up, or last year where Afghanistan's government almost unwound over tensions of the election. How can they have trust in that process? If technology can help us, appropriately applied, uh, I'm all, personally, I'm all for it, and I often advocate for it. But where people are not trusting the process, that's really what NDI's concern is. How can you build a process that's open and has public trust? There is an interesting additional layer to all of this, which is which which you would touch upon, which is another part of elections and democracy are the metrics by which we judge those who are in yeah. power. Yeah. And you know, for example, you know, economic metrics, you know, we, we know that the data that comes out of the United States government has two characteristics. It's late and it's wrong, right? <laughs> um, and and but we're moving into the big data era in which we actually are going to have constant real-time data of a very granular nature. Uh, and we are going to have different metrics by which to judge how well government is working. You know, GDP, when, when the Nobel Prize award-winning team from the US Commerce Department came up with the idea of GDP in the 1930s, there was a six, eight page introduction at the beginning saying don't use this as the primary metric of your econo economy success. And you know, we treated that like it was the tag on a, a mattress. You know, we sort of tore it off and got rid of it. We've been using G, you know, that's, you know, next year there'll be an election. Oh, Obama was successful because we're up 3.2%. GDP is a completely meaningless number. It has almost real, no relationship to your lives, right? But, but, but we're going to have real-time data, block by block, group of people by group of people, economic data, uh, environmental data, um, uh, health data, crime data, in, uh, in, in just remarkable ways. It's going to drive the discussion in a different way. And we're going to judge leaders in a big data world in a very different way than we judge leaders today. And maybe just one, one other observation about technology and, and the elections. You know, for, is this going to be the first election in a very long time in America 
where actually money doesn't count, but because of the social media. I mean, it's very, very striking, and there's been a little bit starting to be written about this, how the candidates who at least at the moment are doing well are the le less well-funded candidates, um, Bernie Sanders or, 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 or Carson on the Republican side, who are using actually very cheap social media tools uh, to communicate their message. Have we, without noticing it, gotten ourselves so fixated on this campaign funding and financing set of issues that we haven't noticed the really interesting early lessons so far. Uh, and that, you know, I'm, I don't live here. That's got a question mark at the end of it with a big hope after the question mark because it would be extraordinary if that was a transformation that's creeping up on us. Absolutely. One of the things that's interesting from a journalistic perspective is we're surprised again by the Bernie Sanders traction when we saw a lot of that happening with Barack Obama, some of the same techniques. That again, you know, however many years later, we're shocked that someone can raise a great deal of money online from a great number of people. Right. Well, we also saw the Michelle Bachman traction um, and yeah. the uh, Governor Perry traction. And so, you know, some sometimes traction is just the bubble. Yeah. And no I one's mentioned Donald Trump so far. I think I was, yes. <laughs> I think that, was, deli I think that was deliberate. And he's just going <laughs> to gloat about not living here. But you have Jeremy Corbyn, so good, yeah, yeah, you know, right. good luck yeah. with that. Uh, yeah. Excellent. So we have a great crowd here, so I'm gonna, we're going to open it up to questions. Um, do we need a microphone? We're going to do a microphone. So if uh, folks can just raise their hands, and I'll try to work my way around the room. Who has a question? Yeah, right here on the end here. And if you might introduce yourself, if it's at all relevant. Um, I'm Nate Tibbetts with Qualcomm, and really interested in the role of mobile in elections, as it won't be a surprise to some of our panelists. Um, can you talk a little bit about the nitty-gritty of how technology is changing the elections? At the end of the day, um, social media is great for getting out policy positions and for beauty contests, um, but people vote because they're led to vote. Can you talk about the get-out-the-vote process and how technology is changing that? Well, sure. I mean, look, we, you know, there have been here in the U.S., as some of us heard in a sort of earlier session, the remarkable roles of Google and Facebook in helping people find their polling stations. You know, there has been a massive explosion in, you know, the parties using data to identify where their likely voters are and to actively try and recruit them and get out the vote. So I think you know, this is one of the areas where without even any formal change in the voting system itself, uh, the general impact is to you know, drive up the vote. I mean, I think we were told that Google had um, you know, 23 million hits on where's your polling station uh, during the 24 hours of the midterm elections. So, you know, I, I think in all kinds of way, big and small, it is driving the get out the vote. I think the issue, you know, frankly, one of the stalling factors in why there isn't change um, in, in the formal voting processes itself is this long-standing standoff around do different changes, uh, enhance turnout, which groups do they uh, empowered to vote, which groups feel that they might be excluded by, from voting uh, through the identification systems, etc. And, you know, in the U.S. there's always been, again, for us who are non-Americans, is, you know, for a country which is 
such a profoundly democratic country as this one is, you know, the way both sides game the issue of, 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 of trying to tilt the vote, the, the, the people who actually vote in their advantage, to their advantage has always struck me as you know, very perverse and, if I can as a Brit say, very un-American, actually. Seems to me, you know, in some respects, the, the subject of this panel is, is, is like sort of this t tiny speck in the middle of, you know, a, a universe of changes. And it just proves that government is the ultimate lagging indicator. Because if you look at the process of democracy now, and you go to Mark's point, you know, you have candidates using social media to communicate. You have campaigns using big data to identify the best prospects and not have to go to the others. Obama started, you know, doing that earlier. You have uh, uh, social media helping with, uh, or, or it, it, these services helping people to get out the vote. Um, you've got actually every aspect of democracy changing, except the voting aspect in is the United though, States. I mean, not to, is it? Are, so do we have more representative democracy? Is there any more responsiveness amongst well, of course government the, officials? But, but, well, no, look, government officials. You mean who? You know, um, John Boehner. I, you know, I mean, the 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 the, the, the we ha does social media have an impact on politics? Does um, uh, 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 the 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 wave of of blogs and other journalistic mechanisms that now find new means of distributing themselves have ways of impact have impact on politics? Um, uh, does the fact that People are getting on Twitter all day long streams of news and information. Of course it does. It has a, it has a gigantic impact. Does it have an impact on politicians? And nothing seems to have an impact on the politicians <laughs> in Washington. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's there, you know, it's, 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 it's all changed in profound ways. Um, it, 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 ch it changes how they raise their money. Um, it, it, it changes how they communicate to their people. Um, they, you know, they just seem to be resistant to listening. But I think that has to do with different kind of dysfunction. I, I, think, it has, I, I think it has to do with um, the campaign finance system that you think we may be obsessing about. I, I think it's broken. We think we live in a corrupt society with a corrupt political system. And we don't have the political will to change. We don't, we don't have the political will to change the, 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 the clockwork of the innermost parts of our democracy, whether it's, it's voting or how, or how we elect people, while the public discourse and the way we weigh things is changing radically. I think, I mean, David, your, your books really make us think about power, and in a sense, you're, you're talking about that very subject and you know, prodding us about it now. And what, what you're, what's at the essence, I think, of what you're raising is how do you muster political will? How do you help the populace express itself in a way that causes those people who are holding the reins of power to respond somewhat, to act a little bit differently? And how does the general population have more influence or at least try to equal the playing field with those who have money or control the military in other countries where they have more influence? And this is a profound and a very large and complex 
question. Uh, I, I do think, if you look at you know, the United States, you know, way back in ancient history, in the Clinton administration and before. That's um, very the, hurtful the, to some of us. The, the, the largest <laughs> office right, of the White House was White House correspondence. I mean, we have a sense in this country that if you send a letter to the president or to anybody else in Congress, someone in Congress, that you will get a response. And today, you know, in those eras, if you sent uh, an email message to people in Congress, they kind of discounted it like they did postcards when they got postcards. Today, you get immediate response. Thank you for your email. We will be back to you. I mean, things are changing. Um, and technology is making a big difference. And in response to you know, the question about mobile technology, I think mobile technologies are really critical in all of this. Um, I mean, if you're running a campaign, you're still debating, do we have one-way rapid communications, you know, the blast text faxes out to everybody's mobile phones? Uh, do we have robocalls? You're also thinking about two-way communications using Viber, using WhatsApp and things like that in order to get people to feel like you're more connected. Um, when you're out in government, um, take an example from Uganda, which uh, had an experiment in setting up in, in its parliament um, a, a, an ability for people to have sort of like a hotline to come in via the web and to register questions. It didn't work very well, in part because nobody got a response. You know, and just by adding the automatic response, when you did surveys of people, you found out that they felt better about it. Um, when you look at a, in another example I'll give in, in Pakistan, and many people probably know about this example. Actually, I first learned it um, from fp.com. Uh, there was a, a particular so the source of all good things. It was a particular commissioner in Punjab decided that he would take the registration when people have complaints, they register their cell phones because in, that's one of the countries where people did the leap over the, the landlines, right? So people have cell phones. And yes, there's problems with cell phones in Pakistan and so on. But what he would do is he would take these, the list of the, the complaints and the cell phones, and at random he would start calling people and talking with them about it mm -hmm. to get a sense of it. Over time, this built up. Well, of course, he had to mechanize it. Right? So then there had to be a way to have a database that, that you know, generated random statistical things and other people were involved in making these calls. And what is shown from opinion polling is that the people who get these calls begin to think, wow, I mean, actually, they're listening to me. And when we report that, that someone, in order to register a property, is extorting a bribe, something has happened as a consequence. And so there's a, this is a governance tool. And mobile technology is the key in that particular governance tool, as simple as I make it sound. And in part, what you know, I'm coming back to is that to make people change behaviors, personal contact, or the sense that real people are watching and listening is important. Because every one of these technologies starts and ends with a person. And I, you know, I think that's something that we really need to keep in mind. OK, excellent. Uh, yeah, in the back, the glasses. Hi, I'm Sharon DeLevy from DeLevy Group Research. My question is about um, getting to Lord Malik Brown's point about different populations that we obsess about. This is about youth, and historically, as someone over here mentioned, there's been huge non-voting, non-participation par participation among youth. Um, 
And there have been kind of bubbles that have made them interested in bothering to vote. I'm maybe going back 20 years to like MTV's Rock the Vote, and then all of a sudden everyone was interested in asking Bill Clinton if he wore boxers or briefs and you know important things like that. Um, do you think that, it's a two-part question, do you think that the increase of mobile voting is going to change the way that youth bother to vote? Or is apathy something bigger than access? And if it does change it, how does that change how elections look? And I think David would encourage us to expand that to sort of broader participation yeah. in politics. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I'd love to get one more question so if we could yeah. maybe move quickly. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I think in the UK we just had an election and we were very worried that a lot of younger voters were not going to vote because uh, they were living in university residences and there'd been a rule change that the residence keeper couldn't just block register all the students in the hall of residence. And also that a lot of young people are not living close to their parents' home. They're doing sort of short-term employment. They've moved and they were only registered. So we suddenly found in the UK we had about a million people who it looked as though couldn't vote and there was a frantic last-minute effort to, to get them to register, which was only partially successful. And, you know, an argument that I was making in the UK at the time was, you know, if you had some of these technologies, you could, for example, in the UK have a national register, voter register, which wouldn't be a problem for us. We wouldn't have a difficulty with centralization that would be the case here. And then, you know, somebody could go and vote anywhere. Um, we had the experience of working on the Estonian elections where 30% of people this last election, also this year, voted on mobile. In fact, interestingly, in that case, the, the, the disproportionate group were older voters for whom it was kind of hard to get to the, to the, to the polling station. So, you know, I, I think the technologies to enable people to vote are there. I think the broader issue is restoring for young people a sense of the relevance of government and therefore the relevance of the democratic process. And that is more than just the vote. It's back into David's territory of, you know, a completely reinvented governance. And then I think, you know, young people will have no difficulty voting. They just look at these institutions as even more their parents' stuff and not theirs than a lot of other things, I think, at the moment. You know, at the risk of, of not getting the last word on this round, but it's, I think, to take it beyond the question of elections, there are some really interesting possibilities out there, and lots of people are experimenting with different ways of making governance, you know, accessible to folks. And if you think about um, budget and budget allocations, for example, in New York and in California, one of the cities in California, a few other places and overseas, you know, they're experimenting with ideas like this. You, you put a list of topics up, the particulars where the allocations could be done. And you allow citizens to come in, you know, the, the crowd gets in sense to vote on this. And what they do is they rank priorities and they also get not only to cast positives, they get to cast some negatives. So that you can run the algorithm, crunch the numbers, and you can see what are the, the populace's priorities for the way the budget could be allocated. Of course, you can put now the minutes. You can scrape the stuff if you want to scrape, you know, PDFs and all of that, and you can get the minutes. You can you can follow how the priorities are implemented. You can look at you know the minutes of the county commissioners' meetings. You can follow 
follow you know, the progress of people. And this is, was done the old-fashioned way, by sitting actually in meetings and taking notes and counting votes and you know, using index cards and things like that. But today, we can do it faster. And we can get the results of what we find if you're the Sierra Club or if you're somebody else. You can get those results you know, through various internet forms, whether it's Facebook or whether it's other kinds of communications or Twitter, you know, how you can get the word out about this. So I think, yes, governance evolves. Society evolves. You know, society may lack, governance may lack where people are in society at a given time. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, maybe David and I have a little bit of different emphasis on that. But the point is, things are evolving and will continue to evolve. And I think we have to look at this. It's a lot easier to talk about when you look at it outside the particularly sensitive and volatile area of elections. Everything that I would have said, Mark said. <laughs> Well, you've left me in an awkward spot. We have three minutes. So if somebody, does somebody have sort of a, uh, a lightning round question? Yeah, over here. Yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, Michael McCarthy from the Center for Latin American Studies at American University. So the, um, the vote may belong to the people, uh, but elections are managed by governments. And uh, I wonder if the panel could just talk very briefly um, about cases from the developing world where they feel as though um, there's been a sort of synergy between technology and an enhancement of trust on the part of the people in the electoral process. Thanks very much. Let me take a quick stab. Yep. So, you know, everybody in the room probably knows the adage that's attributed to Joe Stalin, which is that, you know, it doesn't matter who casts the vote, it matters who counts them. Um, and in a sense, that's what we're looking at about, you know, the technologies. Do you really know who's counting it up and whether it's honest? One of the most volatile countries in the world is Nigeria in terms of politics, in terms of the, the threat from Boko Haram and all of the other things that go on. Over the course of the time from, and I've been involved quite a lot there, as has NDI, Madeleine Albright, Mark has played an important role in, in Nigeria, Kofi Annan and others. But from 99 through the next three elections, things kept going further and further and further downhill to the point where you know, it was just openly fraudulent. It wasn't just malfeasance. It was or misfeasance. It was malfeasance. Okay. There was a change in the election commissioner. Political will was a bit different. And there was an introduction of technologies. In this last election, there was biometric voter registration. And in that, it really helped to, to make people believe that the number of people who voted was accurate and it was honest and it was accurate. Um, that helped improve the, the public trust in the outcome of elections and bring down the, the volatility. Mobile technologies were used by the election monitors, something like I described very similarly to what happened uh, in Tunisia. So there were a lot of uh, abilities to verify and check because there was openness and there was accountability that was known about that. Kenya has done you know, similar work. Uh, they are, they've moved and they're continuing to move towards not just having a, a, a biometric voter registration process, which broke down the last time. That was problematic, but they're trying to fix it. And I think, you know, Mark, you're right. And, and David, you're right. This is, you know, tweaking the system. They tried the last time to have a system by which each polling station, when they did their report, the paper is the record, but they would report electronically and that would go up on the web and people could see what the results were around the country, which again brought down volatility. That broke down the last time and the citizen monitoring group was able to provide it, which turned out. But these are the way things are going. And I think you know Kenya will get it together and other countries will get it together. We're a long way from Estonia, almost every country. 
But Estonia, people really trust all of the electronics that are being involved, including internet voting, which I, I don't think many of us are ready to go to. At least most countries are not ready to go to at this point. Okay, excellent. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I think we could talk for another hour, but thank you. Thank you all very much. It's been great. And thank you for